What's up, guys? Welcome to my all-new show, Stimulated. So I want to tell you a little bit about this show. This show in particular is focusing on people's stories, stories of life, love, loves lost, entrepreneurship, business, athletics, just anything and everything that could potentially be interesting about someone and what they've gone through and their, in, their personal stories. Some will be focused on tragedy and triumph. Some will be focused on business, successes, downfalls, failures, all kinds of phenomenal stuff. And I'm just really looking forward to having some excellent, excellent guests on this show and for really being able to bring you guys something a little bit different. This show today is the pilot episode. This is episode one. And I'm entitling this episode, My Story. My name is Luke Lazenby. For those of you that don't know me, I'm a 41-year-old husband, father, entrepreneur, and more importantly, I'm a guy who's been through a lot. We all have our stories. We all have our struggles. We all have the things that have made us stronger. We have the things that have made us weaker, and we have things that we've had to work on and continue to work on each and every day. So I'm going to start this show off from the very beginning and just let you guys know a little bit about my background. So I was born... Uh, 1980 in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I'm not going to take you through <laughs> each and every day of my life, but I'm going to take you through some of the highlighting moments. So uh, my parents were pretty awesome. My mom, who is still with us today and is uh, 61 years old living in, in Illinois, she uh, recently remarried. Her husband, Dale, is awesome. He's a prison guard and uh, just been you know an awesome guy that really loves her and takes care of her, which is something that my mom needed. My mom's kind of been back and forth between some crazy guys for pretty much her entire life. And it's been a reflection on a lot of us, including, you know, myself and my sister. I do have a, a 37, she's 38, she'll be 38 this year. Yeah, 37-year-old sister, Elizabeth, who lives in Louisiana with her husband, Curtis. And I am happily, happily, happily married to my wonderful wife of 15 years, Christy. And we have three daughters, Maya, Marissa, and Morgan who are 20, 14, and 11. So we got a house full of ladies, two dogs, a 90-pound bulldog, Rose, who's also a girl, and a 10-pound Chewini named Daisy, who's also a female. So I'm surrounded by estrogen. But at the end of the day, was born to two you know, phenomenal parents, and uh, we moved around a lot. You know, we, uh, My dad you know, struggled a little bit with work and stuff when, when I was first born, so we lived with my grandparents for a little while. And just outside of New Orleans, Louisiana, a small town, <clears throat> um, and uh, it escapes me the name of it right now. It starts with an S. And we kind of lived in a farmhouse with them for a while, and then we moved back to Florida. They had originally moved to Florida from the UK. My mom actually met my father while she was attending high school in Scotland, and my dad was working on oil rigs, and that's how they met. And uh, came over to the United States and kind of settled in Florida. And we were in the Bradenton, Sarasota area. My sister was born in 1983. And uh, she's uh, three and a half years younger than me. And uh, yeah, things, once my sister was born, things kind of took a, a strange turn. You know, my mom found out that my father was actually homosexual. And he had gone through a lot of stuff with his family in terms of what acceptance and things like that so he just kind of decided you know he had a father who was very much against homosexuality and you know would have been angry with him if he would have known that that's you know what he uh the way he was living so I guess he he essentially tried to live 
a life of, you know, just a normal guy and kind of like tried not to try not to, you know, lean on those feelings of, of being attracted to men. So he tried to go the normal route. He got married, he had kids and, you know, eventually just got to a point that he was, he realized he was living a lie. And my mom's a very interesting woman. And when I say that she's, uh, she's a little more open-minded than I think most women would be. And I think it got to a point where she started to realize these things. So she tried to incorporate some of this stuff into their relationship and in, in hopes that it would kind of allow my dad to have the freedom that he needed to express himself with both her and, you know, somebody else. And it just didn't work. You know, obviously when you, when you love somebody like that and you're, you're that enamored with someone, it, I don't care who you are. It's very difficult to see somebody be sexually active with somebody else and not get, you know, jealous and upset and frustrated. So eventually, you know, they did separate in 84 and my mom met up with a guy named Jim, who was a landscaper, Jim Brown, James Brown was actually his name, not the James Brown, of course, but, uh, met up with him and we, they, uh, you know, became a thing, I guess. And he actually moved us up to New Jersey of all places. So we went from nice, sunny Bradenton, Sarasota area, South Florida to living in Berlin, New Jersey. And kind of a similar situation, man. We lived with his parents for a while. Then we lived in a hotel for a little bit. Um, his mom was a nasty woman and uh, would just was just evil and mean towards me and my sister. And, you know, it, it was tough because we loved her. She was like a grandmother to us, but she was just, I mean, just evil in ways that I couldn't even tell you, you know, putting cigarette butts out on, on, on us when she was mad at us and stuff like that. And it was just... It got to a point that me and my sister were hiding in this old tree house that they had built 90% of the time because we didn't want to be in the house and be around her. So we finally moved out. We stayed in a, like a, a motel for a while until we were able to finally get our own place. And, it, you know, this is when things kind of took a drastic turn. And once we got once we kind of got through that and we got into our own place, um, Jim really developed a horrible alcohol problem and became extremely abusive to not only you know, my mom, but also my sister. Um, he didn't really put his hands on me right away, even though I was young. I mean, we're, we're talking, I'm like five years old. I was five, six years old. I wasn't, you know, big enough to fight back or anything like that. But for some reason, he, he seemed to leave me alone. But he would, I mean, he would get drunk and come home and my mom couldn't say a word to him and he would just beat her ass. And I witnessed a lot of this stuff and I, you know, went through it and tried to protect her and did the best I could as a, as a five-year-old, six-year-old little boy. And I remember, you know, every day him coming home and just being scared, not wanting to say anything, you know, immediately going up to our rooms just to give him his space so he could sit down and relax for the, you know, for the rest of the day. And uh, it was just, it was just intense, you know, and one day when I was eight years old, we were over at a friend of his, his, <clears throat> we were over at a friend of his place and, uh, they were playing darts. They had a, like a little bar in the back and they were playing darts and they were all drinking. And he's like, come on, Luke, come play. And I'm like, all right. So I threw a dart and it hit the metal wire ring, you know, the wiring around the dartboard and it bounced off and it stabbed his buddy in the shoe. Now to this day, I don't know whether it actually got his skin or if it just poked his shoe and they all, cause they all just kind of laughed about it at first, but he got furious, picked me up, drug me outside. The guy had this shed in the back that had like tools and stuff in it and he literally threw me through the shed door 
and I landed in this in the middle of this shed, just covered in everything you could possibly think of. There was like oil and stuff in there that was knocked over when he threw me in there. And I'm looking around and there's saws hanging on the wall. There's saw blades. There's all kinds of crap around in there that could have easily fallen on me and killed me or caused, you know, severe damage. And thankfully, you know, with the exception of being covered in crap, I, you know, I wasn't really hurt. I was more scared to death and I ran away. I mean, I just ran, like I took off and I don't even remember how I ended up getting back home. It was such a traumatic experience and it was just, you know, I, 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 from that point on, it was kind of like, I didn't want to have anything to do with this man. <clears throat> and it really impacted my thought process on like how I would handle my kids and my family going forward. A lot of people who have gone through severe pain and trauma and abuse pass that on to others. And I'm the exact opposite. I, I mean, I'm, I don't even like to hit my kids. You know what I mean? I treat them I love my daughters with all my heart. I mean, they are my life. They're my world. They're what I live for. And uh, yeah, I, I took a completely opposite approach. I um, told myself that I would never treat my family the way that I saw my family be treated as a kid. So went through years of this, man. I mean, this was, you know, from the time I was, like I said, five or six years old until I think she finally kicked him out when I was like 15. And um so we're talking 10 years of severe abuse. I mean, watching my mom get black eyes, get hair ripped out. You know, I mean, I just, in the final, the final day for me during that situation and through this whole process, my contact was minimal with my dad. Like my mom had, when my mom had taken us from Florida and brought us to New Jersey, she basically cut my dad off. And I didn't see my dad again until I was eight years, until I was nine years old, no, eight years old. And uh, so it took him three years, but he never gave up. He actually hired a private investigator to find us because she wouldn't tell him where we were. And uh, I remember one day he got, he somehow got a hold of me through school and I couldn't believe that I heard his voice on the other end of the phone. I was like, dad, are you coming here? I'm, and and he, so we finally got a hold of him. He came to New Jersey. He was able to see us. And at that time, he let me know that he was HIV positive. And I was just destroyed. You know, I mean, being an eight-year-old kid, it was in the news so much back then. It was on TV that even at eight years old, I knew what it was. I knew where it came from. I knew, you know, it, it was a time when you couldn't turn on the news without being told it's the homosexual disease. It's, you know, it is what it is. And that's, uh, you know, that's, it, it was, it was horrible, you know, and I, I just remember, um, you know, it, it was insane. So I was, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was definitely a, a, a severely hard time. And then, so I'm dealing with that, you know, like I said, we still have, we got this stuff going on at the house with Jim and Jim's just, I mean, insane. And finally, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back for me, I was 15 years old and, uh, he came home one day and he, and, he smashed my mom's head against the wall. And I mean, it, the weird part was he walked through the door and there was no communication. Nobody said anything to him. Nobody said anything that should have set him off. She just happened to be standing like in his way. And he just grabbed her by the back of the head, smashed her head into the wall and like threw her to the floor. And my sister kind of heard what was going on and came running around the corner and was like, Hey, that's my mommy or something like that. 
and he backhanded her into we had these almost like an older version of like an Adirondack chair where it was a big heavy wooden chair frame that had cushions in the middle and the arms were these big thick oak you know arms and she hit her head and it knocked her out and dude I went ballistic I beat that guy into a bloody pulp he was laying in the middle of our kitchen floor completely passed out and we all thought he was dead and that was the straw that broke the camel's back my mom left him there she didn't even call 911 nothing she just left him on the floor and we ran and she took us to her friend's house um her, her, the lady's name was actually Joanne and uh, we stayed with Joanna for a little while until we were able to get back on our feet. And that was the day that we moved on. You know, there were a few times that he would try to come back and, oh, I'm sober. You know, I want, I want to be back in your life. I love you guys, all this stuff. But we never, she never officially took him back. She definitely, uh, she definitely is, uh, <clears throat> she struggled with that because I know she loved him and being with somebody for 10 years, it's really hard you know, just to move on completely. So I'm sure there was more of a relationship there than I, than I can remember. But after that, she kind of went on a downward spiral and she just started dating a lot of weird people. She dated a guy named Suki for a while. It was a, that was a, of Indian descent and he was here in the U S and uh, owned some grocery store, I mean, some of the gas stations and a couple of liquor stores. And it was kind of like a weird relationship with him where he would just kind of show up to the house and he would want sex so he would just give me and my sister 50 bucks and shuttle us out the door and, you know, basically go upstairs and have his way with my mom and then leave. And uh, I found out after when she finally kind of got tired of that, I guess she told him that they were done and he put a gun in her mouth and, and threatened to kill her if she left him. And it was just a very strange, just like, it was almost like she was a magnet for these people that were just abusive and horrible to us. And, uh, you know, kind of like I've taken that story a little far north, but uh, when I was nine, after I found out that my father had AIDS, HIV at the time, I told my mom, you know, I want to leave. I want to go. And it was scared. I was so scared because I didn't want to leave my mom and my sister alone with Jim, but I also wanted to be there for my dad. So when I was nine years old, my mom sent me to live with my father. I went there in July of uh, 1989. And my father passed away on December 10th, 1989. He uh, died peacefully in his bed from pneumonia with complications due to the HIV virus. And uh, it was hard. You know, he died 17 days before his 30th birthday. And uh, it's strange to think that I'm sitting here recording this podcast right now, 41 years old, and I've outlived my dad by 12 years already. And it's been just insane to, to, to realize that it's been, you know, 31 years that we've been without my dad. So um, definitely was traumatized beyond belief. I mean, I, I don't even remember the rest of the year. I, I, I don't remember fifth grade at all. I don't remember. My mom said that I was just a zombie. I walked around like with a blank stare all the time and, you know, uh, just kind of like nobody else existed. And it was a, it was a really, you know, really tough time. And, you know, we get it, we get to high school and I was always, I was never the, I was never a loner, but I was never in the groups. You know, I, I played football in middle school. I played basketball in middle school, you know, enjoyed that. I wrestled in high school for a little bit, enjoyed that, but I was never really part of groups. I never had a lot of close friends, you know, as I got a little bit older, I had a couple of buddies, Nick and Brian and Tom that were like my, you know, my go-to guys. 
And, uh, but I never really was part of any groups. I was never the popular kid. I was always a little bit on the chubby side. Didn't have a lot of girlfriends. And, uh, you know, I, I did have girlfriends, but not too many. And, you know, and, and it was weird to be that guy that was like, you know, you're dating a girl and they don't want anybody else to know because you're the nice guy and you're the one that takes them out and will pay for stuff and hangs out with them. And they're more than willing to come to your house or have you go to theirs when nobody else is around, but they don't want to hold your hand in school. You know, it was weird. I mean, I, I had some definitely had some funky relationships like that through high school. And, uh, you know, high school was high school. It was, it was just kind of like I felt like I was on autopilot the whole entire time. I hated school. I was not a good student. I was extremely smart. I mean, I was the, the kind of kid I was I really think that high school was just boring for me because it wasn't challenging. I'm the kind of kid that could sit sit in class, never look at a book, never study anything and then get 100 on the test. You know, there's just the way that I was. It was the way that I operated. I kind of just digested information verbally even more so than, you know, anything else. And I always kind of had my mind on work. And it was like, as soon as I hit that like 16, 17 year mark, um, as soon as I, you know, the 16, 17 mark, I just, all I could focus on was work. I just wanted to get to work. I wanted to help my mom. I wanted to bring some money into the house, um, you know, and that's it. I just, just what I wanted to do. So, you know, I graduated high school and I was working at a bank at the time and I just excelled tremendously at this bank. So when I started working at the bank, it was called Edinburgh Savings and Loan. It was a little small seven branch bank. And I was just started out as a teller, you know, no big deal. Was doing that when I was like 16, 17, once they would allow me to be part of it. Was there until I turned 18 and it got bought out by a company called Hudson United Bank. And when it got bought out, I was actually a CSR at the time, which is a customer customer service rep. Still basically worked as a teller, but you were the kind of person that could now help people open accounts and stuff like that as well. And when Hudson United Bank came in, I had started going to school for computers. I went to Computer Learning Center for Network Engineering and Management. And when they found out that I was computer savvy, they were actually coming in with a new, they were getting rid of our old NSR-based DOS computer system. And they were bringing in a completely new Windows-based system for everybody. And they wanted young, energetic, you know, training people to come and help. And I did, man. I jumped on my board with the training team, started traveling all over New Jersey, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, you know, Delaware, training, 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 man. And, and that success, that, that drive, that determination led me to become the VP of their training department at 19 years old. I'm a 19-year-old kid and I've got I'm making 80 grand a year. I got a company car. I got a company cell phone. I got a company laptop. I got a company charge card. And it was crazy. You know, I'm like, dude, how did this shit happen to me overnight? I got no college degree. I got no nothing, but it just shows that damn good drive and determination will get you, you know, where you need to go. And I had been like that since I was a kid, man. I started my lawnmower company when I was 10. And, uh, you know, I mean, I worked at a video store putting videos away for, you know, basically in exchange for free baseball cards and water ice when I was 12, you know, I just, I always had that determination and drive to, to make money, to be busy, to be doing something. And it was an awesome opportunity. I did that for about six months. And unfortunately they got bit out, they got bought out by a larger company called Dime Bank Corps from New York. And when that happened, Dime kind of brought their entire crew in and they pushed our training department out completely. So I was kind of like back to square one I did get a, a 
offer to be a regional operation administrative manager's assistant. And at the time I was like, yeah, you know, I've been here for a while. Let me check it out, see what it's all about. And I went and met with the guy and he basically said, you're going to do all the work. I'm going to take all the credit and you're going to make my coffee and you're going to take a 50% pay cut. And I said, no, thanks. And I walked away. <laughs> and uh, it was just kind of one of those, you know, strange moments in my life that I wonder what would have happened if I would have stayed there. But, but I don't, I definitely don't uh, regret doing it. So I kind of went from there and I had always had a passion for cars and hot rods and, you know, things like that. And I jumped into the automotive business. I got into the auto glass business where I started, you know, learning how to replace windshields, door regulators, you know, door glasses, things like that. I worked for a company called Ed and Sons Auto Glass in Maple Shade, New Jersey for a couple of years. Loved it. I mean, from there, I moved on to a company called Mr. Stripes, where I did striping, pinstriping, moldings, you know, all kinds of cool stuff for like dealerships and things like that. Had a lot of fun doing that. Um, and then I got to the point where, you know, it was time to move on. I met my oldest daughter's mom when she was 16. I was 20 little bit of a cradle robber, I guess. And, um, you know, unfortunately, in one of like the first times we were together intimately, she got pregnant. And I shouldn't say unfortunately, because that's not it's not an unfortunate thing at this time. I mean, I have a 20 year old daughter who is an absolutely amazing young woman. And without that, you know, scenario in my life, I wouldn't have her. And it's just, she is one of my greatest blessings. I mean, my kids are my life. And my daughter is just an absolute, absolute blessing. And uh, so she got pregnant. Her mom wanted us to have an abortion, got really, you know, uh, angry about the whole situation, kind of threw us out, threw her out. We ended up, you know, going to live with my mom for a little bit. My mom got to the point where, you know, oh, you're not taking care of your end. She got mad at me one day, literally over, she asked me for some money to help pay the electric bill and I didn't have it. But I took Megan, you know, my pregnant girlfriend to get her nails done for $13. And my mom flipped out and threw us out. So we ended up moving in with a buddy of mine who was basically squatting in his parents' house that was under foreclosure. And uh, we had one bedroom and the house was literally full of crackheads. And I mean that in, I didn't know this when we first moved in, but I found out after the fact that my buddy, a friend of his, Gino, and a couple other kids that he had that were like hanging out with him there in the basement were smoking crack. And we didn't really realize what was going on. <clears throat> until we had somebody break into our room and steal our food, steal our money. I mean, all we had, I came home from work or came home from a doctor's appointment with the baby, actually found our bedroom door kicked in and everything we had was gone. I mean, all of our food, we had a little refrigerator in there and the fridge was empty. Um, they had ran, they had gone through her purse and stolen like 80 bucks in cash that we had. They had taken our bank cards. They had taken everything. And thankfully we got most of it back, but it did end up being, you know, just a complete struggle. And we got to the point where, uh, you know, we ended up putting a big lock on the door, you know, and stuff like that to keep us safe for a little while longer while we were there. We did have one other instance where she was actually home and one of the guys was so whacked out of their head while I was at work that they tried to break in again. And uh, thankfully I had put some reinforcements and stuff on the door and they weren't able to get through but it was scary. You know, I mean, here she is pregnant with our daughter and she's got these crackheads trying to break into the room while I'm not there. And it was just, you know, an unbelievable, unbelievable experience. So we finally were able to get out of that. We got it. We found ourselves a little one bedroom apartment for 600 bucks in Collingswood. 
and uh, couldn't afford a car. So at the time I'm literally riding a bike back and forth to work. It was about 11 miles each way, which was fine at the time. I didn't mind. And I took on a second job and I started working a few nights a week at a Wawa overnight. And then I would do my auto glass job during the day. And I did that for about a year. <clears throat> was just completely exhausted. I mean, I would, you know, I would argue with my scheduling manager at Wawa and be like, dude, stop putting me on back-to-back days. I can't do this because they would schedule me like a Monday night, Tuesday night and a Wednesday night. And I'd literally have to work Monday night, all night, uh, finish my job at 7.30 AM on Monday morning, have to be at the auto glass shop at eight, which was about 10 minutes down the road, work from eight to six there. Then I'd ride my bike home, sleep for two hours, wake up, eat dinner, go back to Wawa and work overnight again. And I'm sure there are people out there that have had even worse schedules than me. So believe me, I'm not complaining about all this stuff. It just, you know, it was just the time and what I needed to do. But I had kind of made an agreement with them when I took the job. You know, I'd like to work every other day, not back-to-back days, because that way at least it gives me some opportunity to catch up on my sleep. But, you know, it didn't really work out that way. So we finally made, we, we actually were able to get um, my, my girlfriend at the time's aunt to buy us some tickets to go to Florida and spend a couple of days with them. And we loved it. And we were like, you know what, that's it. At the end of the year, we're going to move everything. We're going to save up and we're going to move to Florida. And we did on, uh, we literally moved to Florida on, uh, December 31st, 2001. And we flew the red eye. So when we got to Florida, it was, it was new year's day. So we officially got to Florida January 1st, 2002. Um, my daughter was about to be one. She turned one February 13th. And we lived with my ex's grandmother for a little while. And, uh, you know, things were decent. You know, I struggled down here getting a job a little bit because I had an issue with my license <laughs> from being a, you know, a badass, a badass kid and a hot rodder. I had, you know, some uh, pretty fast cars, you know, when I was younger. I had a supercharged F-150 that I used to ride around like a nutcase in and race people. And I got some tickets that I couldn't afford to pay and, you know, ended up having an issue with my license. So, my plan was to go back into auto glass when we got to Florida. And unfortunately, because my license was suspended, I couldn't do that. So got into the restaurant business. You know, things were good for a little while until uh, my ex met a security guard at the building where the restaurant was that we were working and decided he was more important than me. <laughs> so a couple of years down the line at this point, we're you know, rolling into 2004 and I, I'm just getting, I'm, I'm, I'm now working at a champ sports as a manager that was about 40 miles from the house. So I'm trained, still don't have a car. I'm training up there every day, you know, riding the tri-rail sometimes working late and ended up having to take a taxi home or stay in a cheap hotel. If I have to work the next morning, you know, I'm doing everything I can to make sure that I'm making money for my, for my family. She's not working. She's staying home and taking care of the baby. And I had some really funky instances where like I came home one day and she was passed out drunk on the couch and the baby was asleep on the floor and the, on our kitchen table, our, our coffee table was covered with cheer with uh, fruit loops or lucky charms. I'm sorry. And milk. It was like, she was so hungry and her mom was passed out that she went somehow got into the kitchen, got a box of lucky charms, poured it on the table and poured milk all over and was eating it off the table until she fell asleep. Her diaper looked like it hadn't been changed in, in days. I picked her up. I cleaned her up. I got everything cleaned up, you know, and I was just appalled by what I found. And, you know, she just, and, and, you know, it turns out she was just unhappy. She wanted to be with that other guy and she 
but she didn't know how to leave me. And she, I found out that she literally had a complete other life going on. Like he, he was under the assumption that we had broken up. And on the days when I would go to work and she could somehow afford it, she was going to Miami and hanging out with him. And they were, they had like a whole separate life going on. So I would be away at work and she would be, you know, off gallivanting and hanging out with this guy. And, uh, you know, I found so many signs and so many things that I should have broken the relationship off earlier than I did. I found, you know, a CD in the computer that she made for him. And it said like, I love this guy on it and, you know, all this stuff. And I questioned her about it, but she was like, oh, that was just already written on there. And I'm like, that's your handwriting. She's like, no, it's not. That's not, you know, typical stuff that, you know, a cheater will do to, to try to ward off, you know, any questions. And it was finally one day that I came home. She came home in a taxi cab and she told me she was coming from her aunt's house, which was in Hollandale Beach, Florida. But she came home in a cab with a 305 number on the side, which is Miami. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. And I gave her a hundred dollar bill to go pay the taxi. And she came back and she just stuffed the change and a jacket pocket in the closet and told me she needed to go take a shower. So of course I go digging in the thing and it's 50 bucks is all that's left. So I'm like a taxi ride from your aunt's house to here is like 15 bucks. There's no way. What, why did you need $50? Would you tip the guy 35 bucks? And she was like, no, you know, and she just made excuses and I kind of left it alone for a minute. And then I walked out into the living room and I saw something green sticking out of her purse. And I was like, what the hell is that? I grabbed it. And it was, it was a ticket. It was a, you know, a ticket from police and it was in this guy's name and it was in her purse. And I'm like, what are you doing with this? You know, like, why, how do you have a ticket? And she, you know, made up some story about how he came to see her at her aunt's house and he showed her the ticket because he got the ticket on the way there and she had it in her hand and he just got in the car and left and he forgot to get it back from her, you know, whatever. I mean, complete and utter bullshit. Obviously she was there with him and it was what it was. A couple days later, I come home and she's gone. She's not home. The kid's not there. I'm like, where are you at? I call her, not answering the phone. I call her aunt and her aunt hasn't seen her. Nobody knows what's going on. And she had a bunch of purses. You know, her her aunt had a habit of like giving her hand-me-down Louis Vuitton. So she thought she was living the high life and she had all these fancy Louis Vuitton purses and stuff. And I went digging through one of the empty ones and found a receipt to a Publix. And on the back of it, I had a phone number and a name and a couple different kinds of cigarettes written down on it. I called the phone number and lo and behold, it's his house. And he answers the phone. And I'm like, hey, dude, I'm like, this is Luke, Megan's boyfriend. And he's like, boyfriend? What do you mean boyfriend? And she, I hear her in the background, who is that? Who is that? And she yanks the phone from him. And, it, you know, that was just, this was just the beginning of the end. And I had, and I went through a severe downward spiral of drinking and drugs and, you know, pretty much everything that I could possibly do to numb the pain and just kill myself for at least six months. I mean, I, I would get paid on Friday and my money would be gone on a Saturday. I figured out a way that I could go to the gas pump. And as long as I had at least a dollar in my checking account, I could fill my car up and overdraft my overdraft my account and have enough gas to get me back and forth, you know, to work. Cause at that time, finally I had a little Honda CRX that uh, I was driving and it. You know, I could go back and forth to work like 10 times cause it got really good gas mileage. And uh, I just went through a, you know, downward spiral of just hating myself, hating my situation she ended up having some problems with Javier. He got abusive and treated her, you know, terribly. So she ended up going back to Pennsylvania and she took my daughter. So for six months, I didn't see my kid. I couldn't get a hold of her. I'm sending her child support. I'm taking care of my daughter. 
Rarely would she even let me speak to her. It was just a really bad, nasty situation to the point where even when she came home and I met them at the airport, my daughter didn't even want to come to me because she didn't know who I was or, or you know, didn't, she had been gone for so long that we had kind of lost that connection and it broke my heart. And uh, so I moved on, you know, through this situation and, uh, you know, had girlfriend after girlfriend, you know, just hoarded up for a while, you know, I mean, sleeping with a bunch of different chicks, I would go down to Fort Lauderdale and, you know, meet a bartender and go home with her. Or, you know, I even ended up, you know, messing around with one of the girls that I was working with at Champs and then, you know, had her move in with me and it, uh, <clears throat> it was wild. I mean, I just literally went through about almost, almost a year of just, you know, just pouring it up, drinking, spending all my money, you know, just, living a disgusting lifestyle I mean I was just I mean there were there were nights we'd go out drinking all night I'd be hung over and I'd just roll into champs in the morning and lay on the back counter and sleep until the first person got there to open the store and uh, it was pretty nuts I mean you know I just went through this I was in this pit of despair you know and didn't know how I was going to get out of it and I met this young lady named Danielle and things kind of got a little bit better you know I, I felt like this was kind of like me bringing my life around. She, in the beginning, was kind of a good influence on me. We got together. We got along really well. You know, we hung out together. And it wasn't until she met my daughter that I could instantly tell that it just wasn't going to work. Because at that point, she didn't want to come around when I had my daughter anymore. She didn't want to be involved when my daughter was around. And that was a big deal for me because obviously my daughter's my life. And if you're not going to be a part of that, then I need somebody who's going to be. So we kind of tiptoed around, you know, a, a sex-based relationship for a while. And, you know, she would not talk to me for three or four days and she'd go hang out with another guy and then she'd get drunk and she'd call me and, you know, and whine and cry and moan on the phone. And I'd, I'd let her come back and, you know, we'd have sex and she'd leave. And, you know, then we continue this spiral of stupidity for a few months. And uh, I happen to be out at iguanas one night with my buddy which is a club down here in uh, in Pembroke pines and i met my wife and a lot of people were like damn you, you met your wife at a bar and i'm like well i did but the funny thing is the first time i met her is actually she came into american eagle when i was working there as a manager to bring in an application and she said i was rude to her and uh so i met her the first time in the store <clears throat> and when i met her at iguana she's like i know you I'm like, no, you don't. I don't know who the hell you are. And she's like, yeah, I came into American Eagle and dropped off an application and you were mean to me. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, oh, I fucked this up already. And uh, it was funny because she kind of looked past that, you know, and was like, whatever. We hung out that night. We had a fantastic time. I mean, I, I don't use the word, you know, often love at first sight and things like that, but I really felt it. Like, I mean, that night I was when I left the club that night, I was in love with this girl. And I immediately texted her and told her, I said, Hey, I don't want to lead you on. I don't want to make you think something that's not true. I do have a girlfriend, but it's not working. Like we're at, a, she's actually on the West coast right now, hanging out with an ex-boyfriend as if I don't know she is. And I'm like at the point where I'm getting ready to call her and tell her things are done. And she was like, what? Screw you. Like, I'm done. I'm deleting your number, blah, blah, blah. She don't want to have nothing to do with me. And I was like, damn, I screwed that up. But I wanted to tell her the truth. I didn't want to lead her on. I didn't want to be 
you know, an idiot. And the funny thing was the very next day I broke up with Danielle, told her we were done and, uh, you know, went through kind of, she turned out to be kind of like a dramatic psycho, like showing up at my house at random hours, coming into the job and, and causing a scene and stuff like that. And I was like, oh my God, this girl is going to get me put in jail. And thankfully, finally, she once she got, you know, a couple of weeks go by, she finally got it, realized things weren't going anywhere. We moved on. And I called Christy, my wife, out of, out of the blue. And she was like, who's this? And I'm like, the guy from Iguanas. And she's like, oh, the, the guy with the girlfriend? And I'm like, yeah, well, not anymore. And she's like, what, are you serious? And I'm like, yeah. So we talked, I mean, for hours. I think we were on the phone six, seven hours the first time we talked until wee hours in the morning, like 4 a.m., and we met each other and we finally hung out. Our first official date was uh, she was really heavy into, you know, church. And our first date, she was like, look, she's like, this Wednesday night, we have a youth um, event. We're going to go to the movies and see War of the Worlds. And I'd like you to come. I'd like you to be a part of it. And I was like, all right, I'm down with that. You know, I had, I had accepted Christ as my savior when I was 12 years old in Texas when I lived with my grandmother. And, uh, but I kind of, obviously through all this other stuff had fallen away from that and was not, you know, spiritual or religious in any way, shape or form. But I said, you know what, I'm, I, you know, it's no harm in going and hanging out. So I went, met a lot of her friends, met a lot of the youth and just, I mean, I, I was hooked, you know, I, I walked in and I was like, this is what I've been missing in my life is the love of Christ, the love of this fellowship of these amazing people who care about each other and are like a family and I was like wow that's crazy and it just and I just felt right from the first day and here we are you know 15 years later and we've gone through a lot you know we're not by any by any means are we perfect you know no there's no relationship that's perfect there's no marriage that's perfect we fight we work on things every single day and we've been through a lot you know I mean we have had you know, two beautiful daughters, Marissa and Morgan together. Uh, Marissa's 14, Morgan's 11. And I am a relentless entrepreneur. So for my wife, you know, I've had a lot of jobs. I mean, when we, when we first met, I was working at American Eagle. So, uh, shortly after we met, she got me a job. She was working at Old Navy at the time. She got me a job at Banana Republic. And I actually enjoyed working at Banana Republic. It was, you know, it was a good place. I had a lot of fun there. And I made a decent wage, you know, I think I was making like 25 or 26 bucks an hour at the time. And we, you know, we were doing okay. You know, we were, we had a two bedroom apartment. We were, you know, paying our bills. We were struggling a little bit because she had a lot of credit card debt from before she met me that we were trying to get taken care of. But, you know, we were, we were working it out. We were, things were, were moving. And I got to the point where I said, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be in retail. I want to have my own business. I really wanted to open a shop and, uh, and work on cars. I wanted to do hot rods, performance stuff. So I left American Eagle and went to go work for a shop as a general manager for, I worked with them probably from like August until November. And they closed down that shop actually. And they moved over to a more centralized location. I worked with them for a little bit there at the new place but it just got to the point that it just wasn't enough for everybody. So I, I kind of moved on. I said, I'm going to do my own thing. And I worked as a mobile mechanic for probably two or three months. And I was blessed enough to find a partner who was willing to put up the money to help me open the shop. And in Jan in Jan on January 12, 2000, January 12, 2009, I believe we officially opened the shop. And 
it, it, you know, it was amazing. I mean, I, it was everything that I wanted. I mean, I had a 3000 square foot shop. I had, you know, four lifts. I had all the tools I needed. I had a nitrous refill station so that I could be, you know, one of the only ones in the area. And I had a group of guys that loved cars and were ready to build some badass hot rods. And we did, man. You know, the first couple of years, the shop was great. We went through a couple, you know, tight times here and there. And one of the most difficult things about having the shop at the time, and uh, this, the lady who invested in me has since passed away. So I don't want to tarnish her, you know, memory or anything like that. But I found out about six months into having the shop that she was taking money from our bank and using it to help pay bills for her other business. And it just, it was killing me because I kept wondering why I was taking deposits from customers for jobs and I would go to pay, you know, for parts and there wouldn't be any money there. And I would call her up and I'd be like, Hey, what are you doing? Like, why did you take $8,000 out of the bank? Oh, we had to pay this, this, and this. Okay. Well, that's, you have to talk to me about what money is what, because I got 5,000 of that 8,000 was supposed to go for parts to pay for this. And you screwed it up. What's up, guys? Just taking a moment to thank our sponsor for this episode, Tesla. A lot of you guys may know Tesla only for their electric cars, the Model S, the Model 3, the Model X, and the Model Y. But if you didn't know, Tesla is involved in the electronics of the nation and the world in so many more ways than just the automobiles. From solar roofs to solar panels, even taking over almost a complete NASA Space Force through the SpaceX program for the United States and just making leaps and bounds when it comes to the electronic delivery systems here in the United States. Now, and even more so now, Teslas are even more affordable than they've ever been. And if you're interested in having a Tesla model of your own, log on to Tesla.com and get yours today. So as you can possibly imagine, that was a uh, the very trying, you know, time. And eventually we got to a point where we kind of just separated in the business and she kind of did her own thing and I did mine. And uh, I got paid off, you know, the whatever, as, as much of the debt as I possibly could. And we kind of agreed to go our separate ways. But it was definitely a, uh, you know, it was definitely a difficult situation. And it just kind of went downhill from there, you know, as the economy kind of took a crash in 2009, 2010, we went from having steady business to only having people coming through the door for like big builds. And if you guys know anything about the automotive industry, it's the small jobs, it's the, the, the in and out stuff that comes in every day that keeps your cash flow flowing. You know, it keeps your rent paid, it keeps your guys paid, it keeps your insurances paid, it keeps everything, you know, going. And we started becoming more known for doing the big builds and we started losing those day-to-day -day customers. And over time, it just became steadily more and more difficult. And, uh, and, I, and I was really at a position where I had zero, you know, reserve. There wasn't, there was no money in the bank <clears throat> to, uh, you know, to, to just kind of cover you know, the, those expenses. And I, and I made some changes. I made a move at one point to a, a larger space that was actually cheaper, but was in a, you know, it gave us a little bit more room for some of the projects and things like that. And, uh, and it ultimately ended very, very poorly. So, you know, I enjoyed the, the six years that I had the shop, but uh, it ultimately ended in such a way where, you know, I disappointed a lot of people. 
I made a lot of mistakes. I, you know, just, I embarrassed myself, you know, and I left the industry with a, I just, I left an industry, I left the industry with, you know, a tarnishment on my, not only my resume, but on my, on my heart and on my mind, because I'm not that guy. I'm not the type of person that would ever want to leave anybody high and dry or not finish something or, you know, take money from somebody that, and not provide, you know, the service that was intended to be rendered at the end. But I just got into a point where I was backed into a corner and I had nothing left. I mean, there was a point where I was literally selling tools on Craigslist and eBay and whatever else, like weekly, just trying to keep money flowing in the shop to keep things going so I could get some of these jobs done. And it eventually just got to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't no longer get blood from a stone, you know, and I wasn't paying bills at home. The family was suffering. We, at one point, didn't actually get evicted from our home and ended up having to move in with my in-laws. And it was just, you know, I eventually just had to say, I had to call it quits. I had to, you know, stop the bleeding. And it was, it was a learning experience, but in the same respect, it was, you know, heartbreaking. It was embarrassing. It was frustrating. Um, there was a lot of it that I look back on and, you know, remember the fantastic things that came of it, the relationships, the people that I met, the time we spent together, the, the races, you know, the, the, the just the car shows, you know, the, the completed builds and the smiles on people's faces when they, you know, got to drive these, you know, amazing cars for the first time and things like that. And it was, there was a lot of fun in it, but I'm glad it's gone. If that makes any sense. Now I'm still left kind of like with a, uh, you know, a, a, a hurt a little bit in my heart because there are people that to this day, I have not been able to make good on some of those circumstances. And I would love, you know, at some point in time, I always kind of told myself, you know, that if I ever got to the situation where I did, come into some type of a surplus in terms of income, you know, where, you know, I, I did make it, you know, and become ultimately successful and, you know, where money wasn't, I don't want to say money wasn't an object, but where money, you know, where I had that, that additional surplus that I would love to just like have a check show up at their house one day and be like, Hey, you know, 10 years ago, this happened and I let you down. And I just wanted to know that I never forgot about it. And I'm here to, you know, make up for it now. And I don't know if that'll ever happen. Um, I wish that it, that the possibility would be there for it too, because I'm not, you know, it doesn't feel good on my heart. I mean, I closed the shop in 2014, it's 2021 and I still feel it. You know what I mean? I still feel the disappointment. I still feel the frustration. I still wake up some days thinking about those people and how, you know, they must feel and how, and it's not, and you know, and, and I think that, I'm not tooting my own horn here because I screwed up and made a lot of mistakes and let people down. But I think that says a lot to the fact that I didn't just forget about it and move on. I mean, I've literally spent years, you know, dwelling on it and, and looking back at the past and wishing there was something different that I could have done. So I moved on, you know, 2014, I closed down the shop. I went to go work for AutoNation and uh, AutoNation was a company that, I saw a future, you know, I, I kind of wanted to stay in the automotive industry because that's what I had been doing. And that's where my passion was at the time, but it just kind of, it, it just kind of like tarnished with everything that I went through. And in a very short period of time, I just found myself, you know, easing out of it, but it was a really quick transition. I started with AutoNation 
as a service advisor. Within a couple months, I was working as a used car technician, which would sound like a backward process for most people, but it really wasn't. The uh, service advisors were kind of the, the low guys on the totem pole that were getting paid peanuts. And the uh, used car techs were some of the guys in the building making the most money because they were turning the most hours. So, you know, I was really doing, really doing better, got myself in a good position. Um, I was a used car tech for probably about six months and I got promoted to uh, reconditioning manager, which is ultimately the, the manager who's in charge of the used car department and uh, checking in new vehicles and things like that. So my job then became to make sure that all the new vehicles in the lot were checked in, um, pre-delivery inspected, ready for customers when they showed up. And as well was my job to inspect and ensure that all the used cars that came in and were ready for resale were repaired correctly. You know, if they were getting sent off to auction, it was my job to make sure that, you know, they were sent off and, and handled. It was my job to coordinate with um, outside vendors to get stuff done, plus our internal mechanics and things like that. So it was a lot of fun, man. I did that for a little over a year. And uh, ultimately, I had kind of a funky experience. And, uh, and my daughter actually developed a condition called myocarditis. And she ended up in Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital for 18 days. She was in the cardiac ICU unit. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of got a call in the middle of the night from her mom saying, Maya's passing out and we don't know why. And they took her to the hospital. They were doing CAT scans, thinking that she was having seizures. They couldn't figure it out. And finally, one of the nurses kind of realized her heart rate's only 30. Like this, we're looking in the wrong spot, guys. And they finally figured out that she actually had some swelling around her heart. And uh, that was 18 days that I didn't go to work. You know, I stayed and was there for her as much as I could be. We all were. Her mom was, her stepdad, <clears throat> excuse me everybody, you know, was, was there for her and it put a strain on work, you know, because I wasn't there and, uh, they weren't not happy with me. <laughs> so when I went back, it never really felt the same. I kind of, I kind of, I went back and got, you know, hammered over the head with some stuff that was kind of meaningless in my opinion. And I was kind of like, you know, why am I going through this right now? when I just had to deal with this with my child. And I kind of just made a determination in my mind right then and there that it was time for me to move on. And I had been, you know, really getting heavy into fitness and, you know, working out and I, fitness had always been, you know, something that was kind of like in the back of my mind. And I had uh, trained as a power lifter and, you know, done, done some fun stuff on the side, but it was never really, never really a, a source of income. You know, I was kind of uh, coach and training some people and things like that. And I said, you know what, maybe it's time for me to do this full time. So I accepted a position as a training director for a UFIT, which is a chain gym down here more so in the South. They're, they're expanding throughout the United States now, but it was actually a partner with uh, Planet Fitness for a while. And then Planet Fitness kind of took that whole lunk alarm and handing out Tootsie Rolls and pizza on Fridays to the next level. And the owner of UFIT, Rick, said, nah, man, we're not going that way. We're at real gym. We're not giving people pizza and, and Tootsie Rolls. So they kind of kept it more like a real gym still a little bit on the, you know, inclusive side, purple and green, funky colors, you know, things like that. And it weights only up to 90 pounds and stuff like that. So it was a, it was still kind of a, you know, uh, just a normal gym. I'll put it. It's not a bodybuilder style gym, things like that, but I had a lot of fun, man. And I worked at UFIT for about a year and a half as a, as a uh, personal training director. And it was, I don't remember 
I don't know. I really don't remember the last time I was that happy. And it just, it was, it, and what was, why I was so happy was because I was changing people's lives. You know, we had people that were coming through the door that were overweight, that were unhappy, that were struggling with relationships, struggling with work, struggling with life. And just, I mean, I, I remember sitting down and having a conversation with people that just wanted to give up. They were done. They, they, I mean, people that were literally ready to just leave the earth because they didn't feel like there was anything they could do to improve their situation. And we would get them going, man, and get them hustling and get them moving. And in weeks, days, I mean, sometimes hours, you would see mindset changes. You would see hearts being changed. You would see bodies being broken down in a positive way and changed. You would see just life coming back into these people. And it was the most fulfilling, most fulfilling, you know, job that I've ever done. The only issue was there was literally no money in it. <laughs> You know, and after about a year and a half of doing it on a promise of making, you know, $75,000 a year when I got hired, they put me in the lowest volume club, you know, the, I kind of th through a process of people getting, you know, terminated and um, districts being realigned and things like that. I went from being in the highest grossing club to the lowest grossing club because the, uh, the district manager who had hired me wanted me on his team. And, you know, and in a way, I, and, and as a loyal person that I am, I stuck with him and I said, okay, man, I'll take it, you know, I'll take you in stride and we'll roll with this and we'll see what happens. And it did exactly what you would expect it to do. I think my first year there, I made about 32 grand, which was just, you know, I mean, going from making six figures to 32 grand is sadly something that's happened to me more than once in my life. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and then the second year, I think I finished somewhere, you know, well, the, the, the first year wasn't a complete year. So, uh, I did make a little bit more than that, but I made about 32 at UFIT. And I think in total, when I look back, I think I managed to get somewhere in the 50 range, which isn't terrible, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't what my family needed. And uh, so I left and uh, I, I really, I made the decision, excuse me, early in 2017 that in, at the at the end of 2016, a new brand came on board in the supplement industry and really made some crazy waves, man. And if you guys are, you know, familiar with the supplement industry, you know, the brand's called Redcom One. And these guys, they just took the industry by storm. I mean, it, it was like, you know, Aaron, the, uh, the, the founder, had uh, been a partner with another guy, PJ Braun at Blackstone Labs. And they had, you know, created multiple brands. They had a Prime Nutrition um and there was another one that I can't think of off the top of my head for a while, but um, so he they had seen success, you know, they had been an Inc. Inc. 500 company, and I mean, really just just blown up in the supplement industry. So Aaron and PJ had a falling out, and Aaron decided to move ahead with Redcon. And I mean, from the minute I saw the aura of the company, the the image they portrayed, their um their support and kind of like direction with the military and things like that. It was all things that kind of stood in line with my beliefs, my core values. And I was like, you know what, man, I, I want to be a part of this team. And I told myself that in November of 2016, I signed up to be a part of their affiliate program, the tier operator program. And, uh, <clears throat> and I told myself, I'm going to work for this company. Like This is not, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And that was who I was back then, you know, like, in, in 2016, you know, well, I shouldn't even just in that era of my life, 
I put my mind to something that happened. I didn't, I, I had all the ambition, all the drive, all the determination in the world. And I never stood back and said, I'm worried about anything. You know, I, I had no care in the world. I knew that I was going to be successful no matter what I did. And that drove my wife insane because she couldn't understand how I had such a strong belief and I was never worried about anything. So sure enough, you know, I, uh, I signed up for the tier operator program, started hustling and doing my thing. And it all kind of came down to, I decided one day I was like, you know, they don't have a, they don't have an Instagram page for the tier operator. So I'm going to make one. So I made one, I started running it. I started getting more and more followers, more and more followers, more and more followers. And, uh, and next thing I know, I'm talking to, to the owner's wife, you know, and we're communicating back and forth about giveaways and we're collaborating on stuff and we're, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of creating a rapport and building a relationship. And I'm like, Hey man, this is awesome. So sure enough, you know, the day finally comes, they pop up a message. Hey, you know, Dariel is, uh, got to step away from the tier operator program because she's about to have a baby and we need to bring on a manager and somebody to manage it. And within, within a week I was hired, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I went in and inter- I mean, I went in my UFIT uniform on my lunch break, drove all the way to Boca, which was over an hour from my store and sat down, interviewed with Eric Hart and uh, Darielle. And I mean, I had an, I had an offer the next day. So, and I really can't say enough great things about Redcon one and what I learned in that process and what, you know, I went through and, and, you know, what the company did for me in terms of growing me as a manager, as a leader, as, you know, just helping me to be more organized. I mean, it was, it was really crazy how much I kind of, I did kind of get thrown to the wolves. I will say that because there wasn't a lot of process in place for it. Um, There were some mistakes that were made that were a result of lack of process and uh, along the way and, you know, and, and things, you know, we sorted some things out, some things didn't get sorted out, some things are probably still an issue today. I don't know, but we grew when I when I signed on in May of 2017, they had just under a thousand affiliates and not good ones, really. <laughs> and what I mean by that is is that they what it ultimately happened is when they when they launched that program, they got so much excitement and so much kickback from it or, or uh, uh, investment in it that they got like a thousand applications overnight and they didn't they were just like I don't know how we're going to go through all these so they kind of just did an auto approve of everybody and then they were kind of like slowly weeding people out who really didn't kind of fit the brand as you know they were going through that and they were around the 900 mark when I came on board in May and uh Essentially, by the time I separated with the company in September of 2018, which was about a, about 18 months later, they we had increased the program to over 7,000, you know, uh, members, and grown the grown the the income, you know, grown the, the revenue from the the program itself 1,467 percent, which was, I mean, to this day is just absolutely insane. Obviously, I can't talk numbers because it's not uh, you know, something I can share publicly because of the company, but you know, it, it, it ultimately ended poorly. And uh, you know, it, to this day, I, I just, you know, I feel like there was a lot of animosity and jealousy within the building of the money that I was making, and you know, and I, and I just kind of feel like there were 
some things that were twisted and, and turned around in order to try to make it seem as though there was something wrong that I was doing. And it ultimately came down to processes within the company not being what they should have been, um, you know, and, and just somebody not sitting down and saying, these are our rules. These are exactly what you need to be following. And they just kind of expected, you know, expected things to kind of just fall in line on their own. But when you're growing at such a high rate, you know, it's and when you kind of just let that when you just let something like that grow in such a way that it becomes organic, you kind of got to reel it back in and say, okay, we're at this point where, you know, because what was crazy is that once I left the company, a lot of stuff changed and they even pulled discounts down and they started limiting people on, you know, free product that they were getting and stuff like that. And, you know, and these are, these were things that I kind of foresaw and knew that were going to probably end up happening because, you, when you build the way their criteria was kind of set up was that they had tier levels. And once you got to the tier number two, you basically, there were really no rules. It was kind of like, once you hit this level, you get 500 bucks a month in free product period, whether you make any sales or not. And that was how their rules were kind of laid out. So I had kind of put some soft rules in place on my own that required people to at least have a sales amount equal to or greater than their free product, but it was never really set in stone. It was never actually a rule that was diversified into the program. And, uh, and I knew that something like that was going to end up changing after a while. So it was just <clears throat> a lot of stuff that could have been uh, in every business. There could have been things that were better, but it was fantastic. I mean, you know, I look back at the, I look back at the bulk of my time there and I, like, I'm not upset, you know, I mean, it's, there was obviously a reason that it was time for me to move on. There was a reason that, you know, I wasn't, I'm no longer there and I accept that and I move forward. But in the, but in the end, you know, I do have a lot of respect for those guys. I have a lot of respect for where the company has gone since then, you know what I mean? And the, the strides that they've made and the, you know, just the incredible, their incredible vision and stamp they put on you know the supplement industry in the marketplace so it's fantastic and they really are the leaders in a lot of instances that other companies are looking to them what's redcon doing now what are they you know how are they doing this how are they doing that i mean i can't tell you how many times i get questions you know from people and you know and if it's something i can answer i answer if it's something i can't then you know i i, I unfortunately you know turn them down and i say hey, it's not something i'm able to disclose unfortunately but you know i you can't fault people when they're being, they're having success and they're kicking ass. So the, uh, the only issue I did have upon leaving the company was a non-compete. And, and that's the only one thing that I will talk about a little bit is that it was extremely frustrating for me to be this, to be in a situation where I was kind of like a hot commodity. I kind of, I had the ability to move on easily. You know, I mean, I, I got hired by Nutrex research within a week two weeks, I think, of me uh, leaving Redcon to essentially do the same thing, you know, to be their their uh, brand athlete manager, to design and launch an affiliate program for them, to manage their athletes, you know, to do basically exactly what I was doing at Redcon. And I made the mistake, I guess, of putting it in my bio on IG after I had been there for a while and somebody from Redcon saw it and let them know. And next thing I know, within two days, there was a cease and desist letter on the desk of the owner of Nutrex's uh, 
you know, the Nutrex company um, demanding that they fire me because I was under non-compete. And, uh, you know, they fought for me for a little bit. It was a, probably two or three weeks that we kind of went back and forth with lawyers and tried to see if there was a way to sort it out. And it ultimately led to me being, you know, let go. And anybody who's in the business world, man, I get it. You know, you guys, I've had people say the same thing to me over and over again, where they're like, dude, that's the nature of the beast. Like it is what it is. Like you either find somebody that can bring you in under the radar or you keep your mouth shut and just work or you don't work and you figure something else out for a little while. So, uh, it was tough, you know, and it really felt personal, you know, it really felt to me like they were just being mean and nasty. And that's the only time really that I, you know, was angry and had animosity towards, towards these guys. But once things kind of like rolled over and I said, you know what, I'm done. Like, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let this bother me. I'm going to keep moving forward. And uh, ultimately, man, I, I mean, it led to a very, very difficult, um, holiday season that year because all of this kind of transpired transpired like in the beginning of November of 2018 and I mean I went through Christmas with no job I, you know I was driving Uber just trying to make a little bit of money here and there and as a new Uber driver it was it was tough you know because I was home with the kids and you know I had to pick them up from school every day and it just really put a damper on my timelines and windows of when I was available and you know it was tough man my wife works retail so she has a really you know demanding schedule and uh so it was insane you know and it was it was it was a it was the beginning of a massive downward spiral for me it was a it was the beginning of me letting myself go and forgetting about the things that were important to me and that who and the things that made me who I was you know one of my joys you know was training and working out and eating right and when I separated from Redcon in September of 2018. I was in the best shape that I've been in in years. I was about 270 pounds, you know, outlines of abs, you know, not, I was not shredded by any means, but in great shape, feeling good, training with one of the most world-renowned coaches out there. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and after this whole process kind of like unfolded in November, I, I just stopped everything. I just stopped going to the gym. I just stopped working out. I stopped caring about what I was putting in my body. Um, I actually started a craft beer podcast that is actually number two on a couple platforms that I still do to this day because I'm still a huge craft beer enthusiast. I always have been. Um, but I really got hot and heavy into that. And it got to the point where I was, you know, thank God I was getting sponsored by a lot of people and I was having breweries send me free beer and stuff like that because obviously I had no money. Um, at least not to be spending on that, but it got a little overwhelming, you know, to the point where I would like have a fridge full of beer and have nowhere to put it. So just be the, the goal became to just to drink them and review them all. And you guys know anything about craft beer? Holy moly. I mean, there's a ton of calories, ton of, you know, sugar and stuff like that in these high ABV beers. And, you know, I put on a lot of weight really, really quickly and it just started leading to, to health issues. You know, for next thing I knew it, I started having issues with arthritis in my right foot. Then I tore a tendon in my foot. And then I started having plantar fasciitis. And then <clears throat> I started having some issues with palpitations and, you know, things going on with my heart. And, you know, and then, uh, you know, and as the, as that, the progress, you know, things kind of, you know, kept spiraling downward, I started having issues with my back. And then I started having issues with carpal tunnel in my hands. And, 
it was like, I just would look in the mirror some mornings and wake up and be like, why am I even here? And, you know, and I know there are people that are in 10 million times worse off situations than I am. So to even think that I would think something like that is silly to me. But when you're in the moment and you're depressed, you're anxious, you're frustrated, you don't know what the hell to do, you you kind of just fall into that pit of despair, you know, of yourself. And and every little thing becomes, you know, a mountain. No, there's no longer molehills in your life. They're just mountains. And you wake up in the morning and you just kind of stare at the ceiling and you're like, what the hell am I doing? You know, what's my purpose right now? Where am I, where am I, where do I go from here? What do I do? So rolling into 2019 and, uh, I was blessed enough to be contacted by uh, a gentleman that I had met at one point earlier in my career with Redcon. And uh, his name is Joe Binley and he owns a company called Project AB Supplement Company and a uh, non-fat uh, peanut butter company called Professor Nuts. And um, and Joe brought me on board, you know, as a, a kind of an open role. It was kind of weird. Like, they, you know, we talked about marketing and obviously running his affiliate programs and stuff like that as well, because we launched a program with Project AD called The Farm. You know, uh, Joe's kind of history and growing up in England is he grew up on a farm and his brand is very based around that. You know, a lot of the products are named aptly with uh, things like Stampede and, you know, H2O Remove with two O's. And, you know, uh, that's just it's kind of focused around his, his, his upbringing and, and the things that he was, that he, that he was around when he was a kid. And he's got some amazing products. The guy is an innovator. He is, you know, truly someone who is making waves in the industry. And it says a lot to be, you know, here we are, you know, two years later and we're still working together and got some great new projects coming forward. And it's been, it's been hard, you know, I mean, two years in and I'm still learning Joe, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, I love Joe a lot, man. He's a loyal guy. He's a awesome guy. He has a great heart, but he can be hard to work for, you know? And he, and when I say he can be hard to work for, it's just, I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's, you, you know, we do have sometimes personality clashes and things like that, where I've kind of gotten to the point where I just don't argue with him, you know? And because he, you know, he, he's very swift sometimes to, to stomp on somebody's throat, you know, even over something minute or something that doesn't have a, that you don't have a lot of control over, you know what I mean? And, and I get it. I mean, somebody has got to be held accountable in circumstances when things aren't delivered when they're supposed to be, but there's also a way to handle that when you know that the person has done everything they possibly can. And if a deadline wasn't met, it wasn't for lack of trying something else had to have held it up. And, I, and, you know, we've been in, we've, we've had our moments and, and, uh, but we've definitely learned each other a lot better over the last couple of years and things have kind of progressed and moved on. And, you know, uh, and we're in a very different scenario now than we were, than we were before, but, uh, <clears throat> but I'm excited and, you know, and I do enjoy working for the company. I enjoy the brand. I enjoy the people. I enjoy the team, you know, and it's been a, it's been a process that, I never expected, to be honest, that it was going to last this long. And, and, and there were just a lot of weird things that kind of happened in the beginning that kind of made me feel like it was going to be a short-lived deal and I was going to end up moving on somewhere else. And But the cool part about it is, is that when all this transpired, 
this company is fully remote. Everybody is remote. You know, uh, when I actually started working for the company, Joe was living in Dallas. The main warehouse that shipped out all of our retail goods was in Tennessee. You know, the, the graphic and IT team was in England, you know, and I mean, everybody was all over the place. We had a sales guy in Pennsylvania. We had a sales guy in Nevada and there was, there was no centralized location. So obviously I got to work from home. So here I am, you know, I'm working from home. I am, you know, and ultimately we're all subcontractors. So I've got my own business forged by fire digital. And that was, that's, you know, what I worked through. And, uh, it's just been, you know, it, it's been a really awesome opportunity for me to be here more for my kids, to be here for more for, more for my wife. And it really made me realize what I was missing out on. And what I mean by that is one of the things with Redcon, and I think that's the, this is really where the separation from the company was more most valuable for me was I was gone from my house. I would drop my kids off at school in the morning, get to the office around, I had to be there by nine and I would get there probably usually every day about 8.30, 8.45. I would leave around six, go to the gym, work out for an hour and a half, which was right across the street from the office or in the office because we also had an office gym. And then I would get go home. And by the time I would get home, most nights, we're talking eight o'clock, you know, and I'd eat a late dinner. The kids would already be getting ready for bed. Wasn't spending a whole lot of time with them. And then when you couple that with events and expos and things like that, there were times when, I mean, in, uh, in, in, 2000, in 2018, during the bodybuilding season, there was 18 weeks straight that I was on the road every weekend. You know, and at the time I didn't think nothing of it because I'm making great money. I'm happy. I'm enjoying myself. I'm traveling. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And then you just kind of find yourself in that moment one morning, you know, you wake up in a hotel bed and you're like, where's my family? Where's my kids? What are they up to? What are they doing? And you just kind of, it just kind of hits you, you know, and you're like, you know, what am I doing? And we're not talking about little kids. I mean, at this point in time, my, um, you know, my oldest was 17, my, uh, you know, Marissa, who's my middle daughter, was, got to say, well, she was born in 07, so we're talking, she was 11, you know, and then, and Morgan was nine, uh, eight or nine, so they're not babies, you know what I mean, these are, these are kids that have events, these are kids that have ballet recitals, that have, you know, award ceremonies at school, and this is stuff that I'm missing out on, excuse me, because I'm gone, you know, and, uh, so I think that was the biggest blessing and the biggest godsend for my transition from Redcon to uh, working with Joe at Project AD. And it's been, I mean, amazing from that aspect. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I can't thank him enough for, you know, giving me, giving me not only the ability to do it, but giving me the balls essentially to realize that I, that I can do this and I don't have to be in an office. I don't have to be, you know, anywhere that I don't have, there doesn't have to be anything more than my desk and my computer for me to get shit done. And it's taught me a lot, you know, about personal time management and, you know, things like that. And I'm a workaholic. I mean, anybody that knows me will tell you, my wife will attest to it all day long. I mean, I'm the kind of type of guy that, you know, we could be sitting down on the couch at 1130 at night watching a movie. And if my phone goes off, I'm answering emails, I'm answering questions. I'm you know, I'm, I'm responding to DMs and, you know, messages online. And it's just how I am. I mean, it's, that's how I've always been. That's how I will always be. It's nothing that's going to change. It doesn't, it, it bothers her 10 times more than it bothers me. It doesn't bother me at all because I'm that type of person that if 
I'm available, then I don't see any reason why I shouldn't take a second and make somebody feel good. You know, one of the, one of the things, and when I say feel good, it's not necessarily, you know, I'm not talking about like patting them on the back or anything like that, but you know, you have a customer that receives a, you know, a broken package or something like that, let's say, and they hit up, they hit you up on IG and they're like, Hey, I got my package today. And this was busted. It makes them feel really good to know that at 1130 at night, there's someone on the other end of the phone willing, even if it's a quick message that says, Hey, you know, customer service in the warehouse is closed right now, but I'm taking all your information down. And as soon as we open up in the morning tomorrow, I will get on this and make sure that you're, you are taken care of. And then we get a new box out to you right away. Just something that simple makes a big difference in not only like your ratings for customer service, but the way people look at you, the way people respond, you know, to your brand going forward, whether they come back, whether they buy again. And that's important to me. Customer experience is huge. And I think it's one of the biggest things that people overlook because they kind of look at that whole, you know, nine to five piece. And it's like, you know, that was one of the things that I kind of never really understood about Redcon was that they kind of had that nine to five mentality and they had it actually set up there and they, they no longer do now. Like I, I believe that they've kind of like changed a lot of stuff and they actually have like a customer service person on call for 24 hours, which is fantastic. And I think it was a great step for them to do that. But back then we, they had like a nine to five. And then if anybody emailed after that five o'clock time, they would get like a random message, you know, an auto reply. They would just be like, Hey, we're closed. We'll get back to you within 24 to 48 hours. And people don't like that, man. People don't like that auto reply crap. They don't like being, they don't like to be felt like they're being shuffled off. And if it takes me five seconds to make a quick message to somebody, just to let them know that there's somebody there listening, that's important to me, you know? And, and, so we've had, we've had a ton of success, you know, with, uh, with Project AD and Professor Nuts and it's, it's been, you know, fantastic. I mean, the, the, the last two years of just growth and developing, I mean, to watch AD thrive and, and flourish through like COVID and all this other stuff was, I mean, it was insane. And I'm so, so, so super proud of that. And there's been, <clears throat> one of the coolest parts about this whole process has been, you know, the, the, the spawns, you know, essentially that have come from it. I mean, I've had the, the honor and the pleasure of working with brands like Mutant and Rep Life and, you know, which is, they all kind of fall under the Fit Foods um, banner, which is a uh, very well-known, very long-standing, you know, supplement company um, up in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Um, I've had the opportunity to work with some larger retailers overseas. I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of small brands, you know, and helping them with consulting and things like that. And, you know, this past COVID was everybody, I, I saw a lot of people through the whole 2020 COVID experience losing everything, you know, like losing money, losing time, losing jobs. I mean, everything you could possibly imagine. And it couldn't have been a bigger blessing for me from a professional standpoint. And I don't think that that's fair in a lot of cases, because I know there are a lot of people out there, like I said, that were struggling and that, you know, went through a lot of downturn from it, but I didn't experience that. You know, my family actually came out of the other side of this into 2021 positively. You know, we saved money. We were able to, you know, buy by, you know, part of, part of being stuck in the house and, and not going out and wasting money on things like going to restaurants and, you know, stuff like that, that was probably something that we might've done a little too often. 
it kind of made us realize that we did have a slight surplus that we didn't realize we had. And when we started actually saving that and working with it, it put us in a better place to the point where now we're actually moving into a bigger house and, you know, little things like that, that, you know, make a big difference. And, and, you know, money management is huge. And, you know, I, I learned a lot personally over 2020, not only with myself, but with the businesses that I consult for and the people that I talk to. And it's just been, uh, it's, it was, it was definitely an enlightening and an amazing experience for us. You know, 2020 was hard. We lost, you know, some really, really, really great people. I mean, I only know one person personally that I lost, um, who passed away with COVID, um, a friend of mine, uh, Brett, <clears throat> that, uh, you know, um, sorry, my friend of mine, Todd, Brett is his brother. And Todd and I worked together in the youth department at um, my old church a few oh, years ago, but he, but his dad, Jim, is longtime friends with my father-in-law and our family. And, um, you know, I'm not really sure the whole circumstance that happened with Todd. I don't know, really to this day, we don't have any answers to whether he had underlying conditions or not. He was a fairly healthy, maybe slightly overweight, 42-year-old guy. And, uh, you know, the only thing that I could think of is it kind of seems like maybe he waited a little too long before he sought medical help. And by the time he uh, got into the hospital, he was almost instantly put on a ventilator and it just and, and he didn't make it out the other end. So it, it was really tough and it was a devastating loss for his family and for a lot of our friends. But the even harder and, and it's not even it's not fair to put this on his family in any way, shape or form. But the harder part was the suicides, man. Like I lost seven people that I know throughout 2020, some more personal than others, um, all because of suicide. And six of the seven people were actually ex-military and people that I had spoken to and had conversations with about being depressed and anxious and, and, stuck at home and five of those five of the six that were military were all single lived by themselves and the isolation that the lockdowns created for a lot of these people who were in uh, the northeast philadelphia new york new jersey areas it was so severe that they just they just couldn't handle it you know and and it was absolutely heartbreaking um and then we come to kind of like towards the end of 2020 and a really good friend of mine that uh, a really, really good friend of mine that I regret a lot of time missed with this, you know, gentleman was someone that uh, I could have seen being like my best friend, you know, lifelong. Um, his name was Miguel and uh, Miguel was actually a police officer and a crime scene uh, investigator for uh Miami Beach Police Department and Miguel had a uh, an aneurysm and he just left us. It, it was totally surprising. You know, uh, it kind of came out of left field and um, his girlfriend, who is one of my wife's best friends, Mercy, actually found out, you know, after the fact that he had been having some arterial issues and um, and I think it was kind of something that they figured out was a genetic thing within his family where they did have, they were prone to some of this kind of stuff like aneurysms and things like that. And uh, they just, they were kind of just hanging out and enjoying each other's company on a one day and he was riding the Peloton and working out and taking care of himself, you know, and, uh, and he uh, went down and never got back up.
and it was uh that one hit home really really hard you know and part of it was just mercy you know and seeing how broken she was and how broken she still is i mean here we are i mean you know six months later and she's still not herself she still isolates herself she still you know kind of doesn't want to be as involved with life you know as a lot of other people are and it, and it hurts you know you see someone who was so outgoing so full of life so full of love and to lose somebody like that it you know it, it's just absolutely gut-wrenching so uh yeah it was definitely you know just super 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 difficult and uh and then you know, that happened. And uh, my mom has a lot of health issues, right? My mom's 61 years old. She was a 40 plus year smoker. She was a pot smoker. She's done, you know, pretty, she's, she's failed to take care of herself in pretty much any way you can possibly imagine. She's five feet tall, 250 pounds, you know, just never, never been the picture of health in her later years. When she was younger, she was in shape. She was gorgeous. She was, you know, she was what she was. And now she just kind of like let herself, you know, she's gone through a lot, man. She had ovarian cancer. She's had esophageal cancer. She's had skin cancer. She's had so cancer multiple times. She's got COPD. She's, um, she's got a bleeding disorder. She's got a lot of stuff going on with her. And I get the call a couple months back that she's got COVID. And I mean, I just, I lost it. You know, me and me and my mom have a good relationship, but there's animosity there too, because she lives about 1500 miles away and has never really made an attempt to be a part of my kids' lives. And she'll blame it on me and say that we don't come visit her and that, you know, but financial stress and things like that has really been the reason over the years that we haven't gone. I mean, for me to take my family of five to the middle of nowhere, Pittsfield, Indiana, or Illinois, which is where she lives, um, and stay in a hotel and, you know, do all that stuff is a lot more tasking and a lot more financially, you know, difficult than for her and her husband to come down to Florida and stay with us and, you know, and for us to be able to take them around and show them stuff. And, you know, and it's just a complete different experience as well. I mean, down here, we've got parks, we've got all kinds of stuff and I can make excuses all day long and, you know, but it's just never, for some reason, we've never been able to see eye to eye on the whole visitation thing. And here we are, you know, my kids are now 11, 14 and 20. And the last time my mom saw them was in 2013 when my sister got married. And uh, so we're talking eight years it's been. So the last time she saw my little one, she was only three. And uh, it's just, you know, it's pretty insane. I mean, it, it, to the point where, you know, gifts don't get exchanged a lot. Cards don't get sent a lot, you know, and, and I can't be mad because it's reciprocal, unfortunately, you know what I mean? And, but I try to talk to her as often as I can. I try to keep her, you know, let her talk to the kids and they have phones now and stuff. So they talk to her once in a while and, you know, trying to at least cultivate some type of relationship there with them. And the, the hard part is that my mom and I are very alike in that we, we are loners, you know, we kind of like do our own thing, you know, and I've always been like that. I mean, even when I was younger, I didn't seek validation or desire to be around people all the time. I didn't mind being by myself. And that 
has kind of trickled over into you know the that relationship because it's, there's no desire to be actively in you know on top of each other so to speak and I, you know and just like a mom she's a meddler and she gets involved in stuff and she you know uh when she was here for a little while a few years wow i mean a few years probably 2006 she uh you know she 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 would meddle and get involved in my relationship and you know my wife is not very fond of her because of that <laughs> you know so a lot of that stuff has uh has definitely contributed to the distance and the factors and everything but the one great thing I can say is that she made it through COVID. She did have some damage and scarring to her lungs. So she does unfortunately have to be on oxygen. Um, the majority of the time now, she actually has to carry a tank around with her, which is, you know, frustrating and disheartening to see, but she's with us. She's healthier. She's getting better every day. Her husband actually got it as well and came through it perfectly fine. He actually got hit harder with it than she did and was down for the count a little bit longer, but neither one of them ended up having to go to the hospital nothing outside of, you know, um, medication, you know, essentially was given to them. They both recovered well. And, uh, so I'm, was happy to hear that, you know, and, uh, it's wild, man. I mean, <clears throat> I look at, I actually had this conversation with my wife yesterday and the, the family dynamic kind of of things and that the, the family that I have in me, my wife and my daughters, we are so close. You know, like, I mean, it, it kind of makes me realize that maybe I wasn't as much of a loner as I thought I was, <laughs> because now that I have this beautiful family, these wonderful kids, this amazing wife, I don't want to be without them, you know, and it was kind of uh, 2000, 2019 when my daughter went off to college, she was only 45 minutes down the road. And she stayed uh, on campus for uh, at FIU. So proud of her. And but her leaving was devastating. I mean, for weeks, I was depressed. I was upset, you know. And because I knew, I mean, she's an, she's an eighteen year old kid. She could be forty five. She could be ten minutes away. She ain't coming over, <laughs> you know. And and it happened. You know, we rarely saw her. She would stop by once in a while, but it wasn't a common theme, you know. And and. So it's kind of a blessing that the COVID thing happened in that respect because it sent her back home. You know, she came back and to live with us because she got booted out of the, the dorms because of COVID and helped us kind of like recultivate relationships and things like that, which was great. And um, it, it just made me realize how important they all are in my life. And now here we are, you know, she, uh, she, suffered the loss of her grandmother last year. Um, she died from cancer and, uh, Maya was actually living in her home and, you know, helping and taking care of it. And the plan when her grandmother passed away was to keep the house and, and kind of have like a, and keep a home down here for her mom in Florida because they live in Virginia. And that quickly, I guess, be, that quickly changed because they realized the upkeep and the cost and everything in order to do that was just going to be probably more than what they, had realized. So they decided to go ahead and sell the house. So Maya, you know, she's obviously here. She has her job here. She has school here. So she moved back in with us. And that's what prompted us now to be transitioning to a larger home. You know, I want to make sure they all have their own bedrooms. <clears throat> right now she's sharing a room with her 11 year old little sister, which is not necessarily conducive to 
a 20 year old's lifestyle. <laughs> so uh, we're actually in the process of moving. We've already begun. We've already taken ownership of the new house and we're already moving stuff in slowly but surely. And uh, we'll get everything kind of transitioned before the official uh, move in date, um, which is uh, April 13th. So it's been, it's been pretty awesome. And, you know, I'm excited about where things are right now. I feel really good about the family, you know, and uh, this week was kind of a, tough one for me, you know, uh, as I talked about some of my ailments and my health issues, you know, uh, the last couple of months, it just really made me realize that I've been selling myself short. And what I mean by selling myself short is I'm not, I lost the ambition and drive and the determination that I had, um, years ago. And, you know, and part of it was chemical, you know, I did, uh, finally went in and got some blood work done and realized that my testosterone levels were in the toilet. And I did, uh, you know, connect with a, a HRT doctor and get myself on, you know, a low dose of testosterone to kind of bring myself back to, to life. And in just a few weeks, I feel like a completely different person. You know, I'm up at six 30 in the morning every day now, whereas I would be sleeping in before and I'm raring and ready to go. I'm sleeping like a baby, you know, I mean, just feeling amazing and everything was going great. And then this week, um, I woke up Tuesday morning at about 4 a.m. and I couldn't move. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? You know, I, I don't get this. I'm like, I'm, I've been struggling a little bit with carpal tunnel and that stuff. My hands have been flaring up here and there and it's been causing, you know, me frustration and issues, but I just been kind of dealing with it with braces and, um, you know, prednisone once in a while um, via subscription if I need it, you know, it's kind of gotten me through that. Um, and of course, dealing with the arthritis and the, and the plantar fasciitis in my right foot that also, you know, seems to kind of flare up once in a while, depending on what foods I'm eating, depending on my, you know, activity levels, depending on the weather, <laughs> I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff. So, but Tuesday morning, I'm laying in bed. And I'm just like, what is going on here, man? Like, why? I mean, I, I'm, I'm dying. So I'm, I sit up, I go to stand up and I almost bust my ass. Like I, I almost ate my dresser because I tried to step down on my right foot and I had no strength in my right leg at all. My, I couldn't even pick, I couldn't even pick my right. I, I, I held on to everything that I could to get myself to the restroom and ended up, you know, going to the bathroom and then as I'm leaving the bathroom, I'm trying to put my shorts back on and I couldn't even pick my foot up off the floor to, to, to put it in the hole in my shorts and put my shorts back on into the leg of my shorts. And I'm like, what is going on? And the pain was just excruciating. I mean, I'm seeing stars. I'm feeling like I'm going to puke. I was just like, what? I, I don't get this. I don't know what the hell happened to me. I'm like, this is ridiculous. So I'm doing everything I can. I mean, um, sitting, I'm standing, I'm laying on the floor, I'm doing stretches. I'm, you know, just, this has got to get better. Something's got to relieve this. I did something wrong. I tweaked something. What the hell's going on here? I don't know what the hell's happening. It's absolutely ridiculous. So I, the whole entire day goes by, I take some, uh, some Tylenol gives me a little bit of relief, helps me kind of get through the day. I, you know, do the best I can work-wise. I even recorded, you know, uh, one of the podcasts that I produced, the center stage. It's a bikini bodybuilding pod podcast with a couple ladies. And uh, 
and I made it through, you know, the day. And, and as the night's wearing down, it's nine o'clock and I'm just, it's just getting worse. 10 o'clock and it's just getting worse and it's 11 o'clock and I'm like, I can't move. <clears throat> I am like in this state of almost shock because the pain is just so intense. And I finally went to my wife and I was like, baby, you got to bring me to the ER. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I was like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I feel this way. I don't know what I did, but I can't. I mean, and she's like, all right, babe, well, let's go. We got you. So she goes and gets the car and brings it up. And it literally took me about 20 minutes with a crutch and my daughter helping me to go from my front door, about the 15 feet from my front door to the car. And, uh, and I was just freaking out. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't, you know, I, I mean, all these thoughts and things going through my mind that I'm going to be, you know, paralyzed. I mean, I didn't know what was, you know, I really didn't know what, what was going on at all. I mean, I had a, a, a concept in my mind that it was something to do with my sciatic nerve and whatever, but, but I didn't understand why it was so intense, why it was so severe. So I get to the ER, it was probably one of the worst experiences that I've ever had to deal with. I ended up spending about eight hours just on a gurney in the hallway because they didn't have any beds. And, uh, and the crazy part was I asked one of the nurses and I'm like, are you guys overloaded like this because of COVID? And she's like, no, it's just regular patients. Like we do have a few COVID people, but it's not this, us being busy like this right now has nothing to do with COVID. And I was like, oh, okay, wow. So I'm like hanging out in the, in, in the hallway uh, nurse comes and takes some blood work. They finally say, you know, they talk to me a little bit about what's going on and they give me some pain meds and some, and some steroids and I'm starting to feel a little bit better but my leg is still just like dead. I mean, I couldn't even, I'm trying to get on the gurney. And I, I, let me like explain this feeling, right? Like I'm trying to get on the gurney and my leg felt like it was 500 pounds. I could not pick my leg up to get it on the gurney so that I could lay down. So for eight hours, I'm sitting on the edge of the gurney and nurses are walking by me. People are walking by me. I'm like asking people for help. I'm looking at people and it's like, they just ignored me. And I felt invisible, you know? And I was like, wow, this has got to be the weirdest friggin' situation that I could possibly imagine. So um, they send me for an x-ray, then a CAT scan. And the doctor comes in and she talks to me and she's like, all right, so, you know, the x-ray didn't really show anything significant. So we're going to do a CAT scan. We're going to recreate your spine, da, da, da. And she comes in and she goes, I definitely see, you know, um, something going on in your lower, like L4 to L6 range in your vertebra. She's like, so I want to get you an MRI. Um, and she's like, so do you want to, do you want me to give you the MRI orders as an outpatient or do you want me to admit you and we'll do it here in the hospital? And I was like, I mean, that's up to you. You tell me what you want me to do, but I'm laying here and I can't walk. So I don't know, like, I mean, going home right now, I mean, what am I going to do? Just sit. I'd rather get taken care of as best as I possibly can. And she's like, okay. She's like, so can you walk to the bathroom for me right now? And I was like, no. And she's like, okay, then I'm going to admit you. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And this is, uh, you know, we're, we're probably working on like 4 a.m., 5 a.m. Uh, Wednesday morning. So she makes the decision to admit me. They come and take me in for an MRI. And the MRI was the epiphany for me of the, of this whole entire process, man, because I get shoved in this tiny tube for like 35 minutes and I just realized how fat I am. <laughs> and I was like, damn, dude. I'm like, you know, at 300, I, 
I got let myself get up to 355, almost 350, almost 360. And I'm down in the mid 330s now. So I've definitely made some progress. But even at 330, I mean, I had to put my hands above my head and they had to like slide me in the tube, you know, at a certain way to make sure that I didn't get stuck. And I was just like, wow, this is embarrassing as hell. So we get the MRI. They take me back down to the ER and then they say, all right, we're going to get you upstairs to a room. I was like, all right, cool. So they take me upstairs and they put me in the corner of the hallway and surround me by basically PVC sheets, a PVC, like PVC uh, frames that they had hung like, like uh, shower curtains over (laughs) and just kind of like made me like a makeshift room. And I'm like, what? I'm like, are you kidding me? Now, mind you, at this point, it's like eight or nine o'clock in the morning on Wednesday. I'm starving. I haven't had anything to eat since like 6 p.m. the night before. I am, I gotta pee <laughs> and I can't go to the bathroom. I need help. I'm not in a room, so I don't have a call box or anything like that. And I mind you, none of this is significant. It's just a funny, you know, kind of aspect of everything that happened because ultimately it all worked out. You know, a few hours later, they finally ended up having a room for me and I get put into this I mean, for lack of a better term, this like beautiful suite. I mean, it was like a single bed just by myself, nobody else in my room, beautiful view outside, TV, had everything that I needed. The nurses were absolutely amazing. And uh, so we go through this whole process and the neurologist comes in and she says, all right, so we got two things going on. She's like, and the reason why they called me is because we had, you know, there's more than just what I'm going to tell you from a physical standpoint, you got some other stuff going on as well. And I'm like, okay, tell me what it is. So she's like, your L, your disc between L4 and L5 is herniated. And she brings up the MRI and shows me, you know, the disc is just blasted out the back of the vertebra and smashing the nerves. And that's where all this tension and pain and everything else is coming from. She goes, but there's a little, there's something else that um, is making this 10 times worse than it that it needs to be. And I was like, what's that? And she's like, and I, and I can't remember the term. I have to get the paperwork and, you know, maybe I'll update it in another episode, but she basically explained to me that I had a hyperactive nerve disorder. And she said that you have a set, they, they did basically a test to determine my pain level based on a chart, you know, of, I guess, uh, you know, normal people or other people. And, she said, obviously, this is not 100% accurate, but we, we, we guess or estimate that you, your pain, the pain you're feeling is about 77% greater than a normal person. And I was like, what? I'm like, how do you even figure that out? It has something to do with, you know, nerve stimulation and things like that. Because they had come in and done like a nerve test and, you know, throughout this entire process. And I was like, wow. She's like, so we're gonna have to put you on Essentially, it's a chemo medicine that they gave me, Um, not chemo itself, but it's a medicine they give to cancer patients who are on chemo that can potentially deal with increased levels of nerve pain and things like that from this like side effects from the chemo and sometimes even radiation. And and it essentially is like dumbing down my nerves to help keep my pain levels more manageable without having to be on like narcotics and, you know, all kinds of other crazy stuff like that. So that was kind of, uh, I was, I was kind of excited to hear that because I had wondered why some of these things that I would go through 
like I talk to friends that have plantar fasciitis or arthritis or arthritis in their ankles and they're walking around fine. Yeah, man. It, you know, it bothers me, but it's not crazy. And then I'd wake up the next morning and have a flare up and can't walk. Like I can't put weight on my foot. I'm like, what the hell? Like, why? I mean, is mine just that much worse than this person's or is there something that's causing me to be in this much pain? So to find out that I did have, that I do have this hyperactive nerve disorder was actually massively a weight off my shoulders. And especially to know that there's a treatment for it. And there's something that, you know, more than likely is something I'll probably have to be on for the rest of my life, but I'm, you know, but as long as there's not too many crazy side effects or whatever with that, I'm good. Like, I mean, I'm happy to, to realize that I can be somewhat normal, <laughs> you know, at this point. So obviously, you know, uh, after spending two days in the hospital, isolated from my family, um, which sucks because, you know, they still have the, the rules of no visitors because of COVID and things like that right now. It just, it was tough. And, and, and you know, when you're you don't have anything to do, but kind of dwell on the situation when you're laying there in a hospital bed by yourself watching home and garden TV, <laughs> you know, I worked <clears throat> and uh, tried to keep myself as str- extremely as busy as I possibly could. You know, I mean, I was on my phone just about the entire time that I was there. I was posting, you know, content on IG and answering messages and emails and doing things that I needed to do. And, you know, and just making sure, you know, that, uh, that I was as productive as I could possibly be. I actually didn't even let Joe know that I was in the hospital because I didn't want him to worry about me. He's got a lot of stuff going on you know, himself. And I didn't want to add anything more to that. Um, so I just handled my business and did my thing and, and um, took care of what I needed to take care of. And it was, I left that, when I left the hospital Thursday, I kind of just said to myself, this is it, Luke. Like this is, this is the moment that you need to stop letting life just coast and you need to start living it again. And what I mean by that is not, you know, it's not like I don't have experiences. It's not like I don't enjoy my family and the things that we talked about, but I've been for a long time, I've been walking on eggshells. And what I mean by that is, is that I've allowed my power. I've allowed my expertise, my strength, my voice to go unheard. And, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. And, I, and I'm at the point now where, you know, that's, that is one of the struggles that I have with Joe. And, and again, this is, I'm not upset, you know, again, I love Joe and he's been amazing for me, but one of the, one of the difficulties I have with him is that I don't speak up as much as I should. And the reason I don't speak up is because I feel like I'm walking on eggshells and, and it's, it's this fear of what happened to me previously with Redcon that kind of just, it, it makes me nervous to stand up for myself. You know, it's almost easier just to say, okay, man, whatever. And just let things go than it is to be, and I don't want to say be combative, but to have a voice, you know? And so I've walked around on eggshells for a long time. I've you know, just kind of like clammed up and shut my mouth when something happened that, you know, might've been frustrating that I could have kind of like, that I could have made a broader point on, you know, or something like that. And, and, uh, and I, and I realized I'm not going to do that anymore. (laughs) You know, I mean, Joe and I have talked extensively about a lot of stuff. And one of the things that he has told me is that, 
you know, you need to take ownership. You need to treat this like it's your own. You know, you, this has to be, I want you to run this like it's your business. You know, at least that my aspects of what I do for the company. And, and there are, in most instances, I do that. But whenever it comes to anything where him and I might butt heads on or see something a little bit differently, I usually just bow out and let him, you know, uh, take the reins or let him, you know, get his point across. And then I just kind of, I don't offer a rebuttal and I'm not going to do that anymore, (laughs) you know, because I do have a lot to give. I have a lot to offer. And I think it's fair. It's a fair assessment to say that I really don't believe that he's even seen my full potential because of that because of me holding back, pulling, pulling the reins back. Whereas if you were to go to talk to some of the other companies that I worked with, their explanation and, or uh, the way that they would describe me would be as assertive, energetic, full of energy, you know, uh, full of um, um, ideas, you know, knowledgeable. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the guys that I'll actually have on a, a, another later version of the podcast. His name is Scott Welch. This guy's like one of the guys who was like, he's like a pioneer in the supplement industry in North America. I mean, Scott has been around for a long time. He's back in the day with like muscle tech and, you know, he actually owns a magazine up in Canada called muscle insider magazine. And dude is extremely knowledgeable and absolute Titan in the industry of uh, sports nutrition and to have this guy call me out on Facebook and tell me that I am the by far the most knowledgeable, the best um, person that he's ever worked with in the affiliate and influencer space, I, I was absolutely blown away. You know what I mean? And that's something that Joe should feel too. And he doesn't because I hold myself back with him. And, you know, and I don't know why, you know, I, well, I know why, but I don't, I didn't know why until recently, you know, so now I've kind of like made that conscious decision and effort to say, look, like it's my time, man. You know, I'm 41 years old and I'm not getting any younger. And this year for me is really going to be about capitalizing on improving my health, getting myself back to a state of mind and a state of body where I can be proud of myself. And that gives, that puts me in the, the best possible scenario to be successful, both physically and mentally. And I'm going to push forward and bust my ass to, you know, make some of those dreams come true that I've been holding back on for a long time. And uh, that means having to, you know, broaden my horizons and branch out a little bit more. That's what I'm going to do. And, uh, but I'm going to make a conscious decision to stop existing and start living. And that's something that I encourage all of you guys to do, man. If you're out there right now, and you're in a tough spot, you're in a bind, you're going through difficult situations, you're finding yourself depressed, anxious, you don't know what tomorrow holds, stop existing, start living. And that, that's going to mean 10 million different things to 10 million different people. But you got to grab life by the horns. And that's not just a cliche. That's the truth, man. Like it's, you know, we don't know what tomorrow holds. You know, the, 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 that, that reality of walking outside and getting hit by a bus is true. You know what I mean? Like we could go to the grocery store, get involved in a fatal car accident and die tomorrow. And are you happy with the legacy that you're leaving right now? Are you happy with where you are? Would you be missed? Are there people that, you know, would show up to your funeral? And I know that that's morbid and horrible and 
probably a, you know, a really shitty thing to say, but at the end of the day, it's true. You know, like I want to know, I don't really care who comes to my funeral. I just want to know who's at the party after the funeral. You know what I mean? Because I want people to look back and say, Luke impacted my life. Luke made me better. Luke helped me to see past the limited expectations that I had for myself and helped me to thrive and strive to be a better person. And that's whether it be, you know, um, whether it be from a standpoint of professional standpoint, personal standpoint, you know, it really doesn't matter. It's not, I just want to know for a fact that I'm, uh, that I've improved people's lives. And I think that's one of the, the things, one of the things that I miss the most about, you know, the tier operator program with Redcon was that connection that I had with people. I mean, I kind of get yelled at sometimes by Joe because he tells me not to get too personal with people. And I understand where he's coming from and I get it. But that was one of the things that I enjoyed the most about, you know, working with Redcon is that I would have guys that would reach out to me about, you know, and, and, you know, be like, Hey man, I'm going through a divorce, this, you know, going through this. So I'm sorry if I haven't been as active as I should be. And it would turn into a conversation. It would turn into me building somebody up and lifting them up and, you know, iron sharpening iron is like, you know, and making these people realize that they're, they're bigger than their situation. They're bigger than their circumstance. They're going to make it through. And it turned into, and that instance turned into a lot of lifelong friendships, a lot of lifelong, um, you know, connections that I had with people that I still have to this day. And it's just, I, you know, I have friends that reach out to me all the time and they're like, dude, you are so impactful. You have such a strong voice. You have such a story. You have so much love and so much passion for helping people. Why don't you do more? You know, people have been on me. Why don't you start a YouTube channel? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Well, you know, there's a lot of different outlets and podcasting seems to be the big one for me that has given me a voice and given me the ability to be able to reach so many people. And, uh, you know, it started in beer. <laughs> well, ultimately, it didn't start in beer. It started with Mentally Triggered at Redcon 1, which is probably one of my favorite podcasts ever because me and Matt Meinrod, who was a, like a national sales guy at Redcon that I knew Matt from prior to that from Project Bodybuilding, his website. And uh, I mean, it was a blast, dude. I love doing Mentally Triggered with Matt. We did get ourselves into some trouble because we talked some shit about some people on staff that uh, and that was kind of like the demise of our show because we we uh, broke some people's balls who didn't show up one day to help pack packages for Black Friday. And we got kind of blackballed after that. So the show never really saw the light of day beyond 20 episodes, but it was a great show. There's still some archive stuff out there about it. You can go check it out. I really enjoyed doing it. And that was like, that was the catalyst that really got me into podcasting. And when I then in November of 2018, when I started the beer podcast, I mean, dude, my beer podcast has half a million plays, half a million plays. And I've never spent a dollar to advertise it. I've never done, I, I mean, the, the IG page has 1,900 followers. We average 8,000, about 8,800 listens per show with my highest listen, highest show right now being like 12,000 plays where I interviewed the owner of Jay Wakefield Brewing in, uh, in Wynwood down here, um, John Wakefield. And it's just it's fun. 
you know, I enjoy it. I love just getting behind the mic and talking and I hope that has come through in this show too, because I know this is a little bit more somber at times and probably a long winded because I know I'm a talker, man. And we're probably, we're going on like an hour and a half, two hours here. And I don't want to keep, you know, uh, I don't want to just keep rambling on. I want you guys to get something out of this and I want you guys to enjoy this, but I want to talk a little bit real quick before I close out um, about some people that are really influential to me. And, you know, if you guys don't listen to or haven't had the opportunity to go check out like Andrew Frisella, um, he has a, Andy is the owner of First Form among many other businesses. They also own supplement um, superstores and a couple other things that uh, a couple other ventures they have going on. But Andy really is an inspiration to me because he's been through a lot. He's the, the kind of quintessential, you know, from nothing to something, you know, sleeping on a piss stain mattress in the back of his first store, not making a dollar for 11 years before, you know, he really started, you know, uh, seeing some type of success to now having, you know, this, you know, hundred thousand square foot, you know, professionally built first form facility. And I mean, all kinds of stuff. And you, you look at like the, the epitome of success, and he kind of embodies it all. And it's not the money. It's it's more about the mindset. It's more about the fact that he just doesn't give a F about what anybody else says. And he does him. I mean, he takes care of his people. He kicks ass. He just does his job, you know, every day to the best of his possible ability. But the most important part, in my opinion, is his how he helps people. Um, there's about 200 plus episodes of the MFCEO project out there which was his very first podcast that was the number one business podcast on iTunes forever. Um, and if you go back and listen to the MFCEO project, it's just, you're going to get some amazing knowledge and insight from that, that, you know, it, it, it's just pretty crazy. The, the free stuff that's out there that he just laid out for everybody. And uh, I would encourage you guys to go check that out. He's since moved over to a new podcast called real AF and it gets a little bit more, controversial he talks about politics a lot and things like that and i love it because that's you know that's stuff that i like getting involved in but some people have you know turned away from it and been like oh i prefer the business-minded stuff but it is what it is you know we we all we we transition as time goes by because you only talk about certain things for so long and if there's not you know if you're not you're not going to keep expounding on stuff that you've already talked about 25 times so it's definitely taking a you know taking a necessary turn and I love the new show as well. So I definitely encourage you guys to go check it out. I've actually recently um, joined Ed Milet and Andy in the Arate Syndicate. And uh, it's been massive for me. And it's probably one of the things that has helped me to kind of come to these personal valuations within myself and to realize where I've fallen short and how much better I could be with, uh, you know, the work that I'm doing now. And I'm proud of myself, man. I mean, looking back on the last couple of years and what I've accomplished with my company, I mean, I've made some massive strides. I mean, I've helped companies achieve so much and I'm, I, sh- I should be proud. You know what I mean? And, and I'm going to be proud and I'm going to use that as a catalyst to keep pushing myself forward and just keep striving to be better each and every day. So, but uh, I encourage you guys, man, go check out Andy real AF on Apple podcast, Google, everywhere you can possibly see it. Um, check out my other podcast. I have the show that I do with Joe Benley, the owner of Project AD. 
Um, Dominic Cardone, who was an IFBB pro and a coach, and Justin Compton, who was also an IFBB pro and coach. It's called All Business Bodybuilding. Great, great show that gives a lot of really cool nutritional advice. Um, just talks about bodybuilding in general, throw some business stuff in there once in a while. A lot of fun. Three guys who just have a really cool dynamic. Then if you're uh, a young lady or someone who's interested in the bikini division, check out the center stage. Uh, it's a show that started off with two uh, IFBB pro bikini competitors, Beatrice Biscaya and Ashlyn Brown. And we have about 40 something episodes with those two. And then we rolled over into a new version of the show called the coach cast. And we now have Carolina Araju and IFBB pro IFBB, IFBB bikini pro. Carolina Raju and Ashlyn Brown, who are both coaches. And it's kind of taken a little bit of a different turn where now you get a, a little bit more of an educational piece from it because you do have the two coaches who are also competitors. So it's pretty badass. Definitely go check out my beer podcast, Calling All Craft Beer. Help me keep pushing past that 500,000 play mark. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for sitting here through this show. Um, this has been really important to me and something that I wanted to put out there. And you know, talk about for a long time. So thank you so much for getting stimulated with me and we'll see you next week.